during the rifle season, there's clear patterns that go on. And we've posted a bunch of different movies on our blog that show deer movements and both males and females. And this is what typically happens. The deer that survive the hunting season, they have some go-to place that they've learned, um, I'm sure just by luck, that they're, they're unlikely to be disturbed. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we'll be talking with Dr. Dwayne Diefenbach of Penn State University. Uh, Dwayne's an adjunct professor of wildlife ecology there. He's head of the Pennsylvania Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit and a leader of the Deer Forest Study that you may have heard of and you may have seen some of the stuff that they, uh, they post and share on social media. Now, this is actually part two, kind of in a little two-part series uh, we did on GPS deer research, looking at things like home range and core areas. We looked at, at deer movement and how they respond to hunting pressure. If you didn't catch last week's episode, uh, we talked with Luke Reesup, a graduate student at Mississippi State University's Deer Lab, to get kind of a Southern perspective on things and, and what he's seeing on his research there in Mississippi. And this week, uh, again, we'll be talking to Dwayne to get more of a, a northern perspective. Uh, Dwayne's research has centered uh, there in, in Pennsylvania on, on several different study areas. So we'll dive more into that when we get him on the phone. Um, but, you know, much of what you'll hear today and on last week's episode can apply across the, the Whitetails range. Uh, you know, some of that stuff is, is, is kind of universal. Uh, but, but there's certainly some some variation there depending on location and uh, habitat and, and a lot of different factors. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. If you haven't checked out last week's, be sure to check that one out as well. It uh, doesn't matter what order you listen, listen to them in, but, but I would certainly recommend to, to check both of those out. Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Outdoor Underwriters. Outdoor Underwriters is the, the provider of our NDA hunting land liability insurance program. And whether you're a landowner or a hunter who leases land or a member of a hunting club, a hunting land liability insurance is essential uh, because both, both parties assume some, some legal risk while on a, on a hunting property, uh, both landowners and, and hunters as well. And it's not worth risking your, your personal assets or your family's financial security for some unfortunate accident or acts of others on the property where you hunt. So for as little as a, a few cents an acre, you can protect yourself or your hunt club and all of its members and guests, uh, and even the landowner with a $1 million policy. So for more information about that, be sure to check out our website at deerassociation.com, and you can click on that hunting land liability insurance banner right there on our, on our homepage. Uh, one other thing before we get on the phone here with uh, with Dwayne, I, I know I mentioned this on our previous episodes, but I want to kind of keep pounding it in. Hey, we're, we're still offering that special NDA membership for our podcast listeners. Uh, you can join NDA for a year. You know, you'll get your quality Whitetails magazine. You're going to get a special NDA cap and you're going to, of course, help support NDA's mission all for just 30 bucks. 
That's $5 off the regular price. Plus, we're throwing in that NDA cap to kind of sweeten up the deal. Uh, So don't miss out on that opportunity. And hey, even if you're a current member, you can still use this offer to extend your membership by a year. You'll still get that free cap. So just go ahead and head over to DearAssociation.com. You can click on the Join or Renew button right there on on the top of our uh, homepage. And then enter the promo code podcast, and that's going to that's gonna get that deal locked in for you. And guys, with that, we're going to go ahead and jump on the phone here with Dr. Dwayne Diefenbach to talk all about deer movement and the deer force study there in Pennsylvania. Hey, Dwayne, uh, before we dive into some of your years of deer research, um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe what led you down this path to... Uh, studying deer at Penn State University? Sure. Um, so so I work for the U.S. Geological Survey. Um, I'm the leader of the Pennsylvania Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit that's located at Penn State. So it's kind of complicated to explain, but the, the co-op unit, as we call it, has been around has been at Penn State since the 1938, and it's a collaborative among um, our fish and wildlife agencies in Pennsylvania, uh, the Wildlife Management Institute, USGS, and Penn State University. And my job is to do collaborative research, um, in particular with the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And so when I started this position um, a little over 20 years ago, uh, the Game Commission actually started um, some white-tailed deer research. and um, we started out with a fawn survival study, and it's just gone on from there, um, trying to address questions that will provide information for the agency to make uh, uh, better management decisions. And at the same time, it's been an opportunity to do research to learn more about the ecology of white-tailed deer. So, you know, we started out with a fawn study, and we've studied does and bucks, and now we're I mean, it, the things have gotten more complicated over time um, and led me to this current, my current research project that's been going on since 2013, which we call the Deer Forest Study, um, that's looking at various factors, um, deer, soil conditions, competing vegetation, and how that influences forest understory. And um, yeah, so that kind of gets, leads me to where we he- are here today. Um, the other thing that got me here was the technology. Um, when I started out, you know, you might get tens of locations a month with some GPS collars that might last a year if you were lucky. And now we have GPS collars that um, I can program them from my desktop and they can last two or three years and we can get thousands of locations on a, on a single animal. Wow. Do, do those collars, does the, uh, do the, the collars themselves outlast the, the GPS transmitter or does, does the collar just end up falling off and then you go out and pick it up or how, how does that work? Well, they actually have a mechanism that we can remotely detach them from the deer. Um, they still, you know, it depends, you know, how intensive the locations you, you require are, but we can get them to last uh, three years. Um, some of them, some deer have actually survived that long um, on, on males, believe it or not. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so if the batteries, you know, the limiting factor is battery life. And so once those batteries start to fail, we can uh, remotely uh, drop them from the deer. Okay. I didn't, I did not know that. Well, kind of jumping back a little bit, what, I guess, what prompted the deer force study uh, when it, when it started, you know, initially in 2013, what, I guess, what kind of questions were you guys initially wanting to try to, to answer with that particular study? Yeah. So the Pennsylvania game commission is, well, it was one of the first agencies that ex- explicitly incorporated forest habitat conditions into their decision-making process for deciding, you know, whether deer populations need to go up, down, or stay the same. Um, and so they, they were using forest service data, but the question was, you know, are the changes they're seeing in forest conditions, is that due to deer? Um, uh, Pennsylvania had, you know, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, are deer a problem with our forest regeneration? I would say absolutely. Um, but today, you know, the Game Commission has reduced deer density since the early 2000. Um, most of the management units have okay forest conditions. Um, so the question is, you know, is it, is it deer? Is it something else? And are the things we're measuring actually detecting uh, changes in forest due to deer? And so that was the, that's the motivation for the study is to try and get a better understanding of what's the role of deer today in our, um, in our forests. Um, and are there other issues that might be explaining some of the things we're observing? Okay. And, and obviously this is ongoing. Um, is, is there an end date on it or is it just as long as the funding's there, you guys are going to keep, uh, keep yeah, researching? I mean, the, you know, I, I've studied wildlife my whole life and, and actually I tell people it said it really should be the forest deer study, but deer forest study rolls off the tongue better. Um, and, uh, and so forests do not change very quickly, right? You know, 80 years to have a, you know, almost mature forest, a hundred years, really, um, in our Oak Hickory forest, maybe 120 years. And, uh, so, you know, we went into this knowing that it's going to have to be more than a typical two or three year study. Um, so we, we've been ongoing and, uh, the game commission and the Bureau of Forestry in Pennsylvania have supported this project and and we're starting to see some results and i expect to see this project wrapped up in about four years from now okay now where does where does this research take place is it a i mean over a a, lar- a broad area or fairly defined area or what what what's the yeah, we have four study areas um both of them are on state forest land they're quite large anywhere from 25 to 40 square miles, each one. Um, Two of them are up in north central Pennsylvania, uh, what we call our northern hardwood. So it's dominated by cherry, sugar maple, birch, yellow birch. Um, And then the other two study areas are in central Pennsylvania uh, in our Ridge and Valley region um, that are dominated by oak hickory forests. Okay. And both of these fairly 
rugged terrain, would you say, as far as the, the topography? Yeah. So the in the Ridge and Valley region we have in Pennsylvania, we have long forested ridges. Um, most of the farming and human settlement is in the valley. And um, and so it's pretty steep. Um, you're talking um, and it's large chunks of, of forest. So it might go from, oh, what, 500 to 1400 feet in elevation. Um, so that's the, the, the central PA one. In northern Pennsylvania, um, that area is in what we call the Allegheny Plateau. And, um, it's, it's, uh, it's basically, it's, it was a flat plain and then erosion over millennia. Uh, it may, you think it's mountains, but really it's a flat plain that's been eroded. So you have, when you get up at the higher elevations, it's pretty flat. And then these streams have cut, um, you know, these valleys, um, and, uh, so you still get, you know, a lot of topography and, and steep uh, side hills and things, um, but it's a completely different uh, landscape compared to the Ridge and Valley. Okay. Well, kind of, I guess, kind of walk us through as far as the, the implementation of this project. Sounds like there's a, a lot of different uh, plates spinning for, for this, this, uh, this research project. I guess start out with just how are you how are you capturing and collaring these deer and and what else are you looking at besides just uh, the the deer movement and stuff itself? Sure, these study areas, um, all four of them are ninety six percent forested. So you might have a few power lines or pipelines or small openings, but basically they're just contiguous forest. So we use um, primarily clover traps, um, which are just a big walk-in trap baited with corn. Um, and that's predominantly what we use. Uh, we also use rocket nets if we have openings. They're a net that's probably 60 by 40 feet that's um, launched over the deer with, uh, with three rockets. And we do that later in the year, but they're, they're not as well. It takes a lot more personnel time because someone has to be sitting there waiting for deer. And, you know, it's just like deer hunting. You don't know if they're going to come in or not and if they're going to smell you and the wind blows the wrong way. So really the most effective tools we have are the, are the clover traps. On other projects, we've used huge drop nets. They're, I don't know, 60, 80 feet by 80 feet um that have a remote release and you know you can catch a pile of deer at one time but you need a big open area to do that and we just we don't use them on on haven't been using them on this project okay now, now these clover traps is that just for, for an individual animal is it just big enough for for one deer to get in and or I, I, most of the time we have caught a couple of deer you know you might catch a doe with a juvenile or something um, but yeah, mostly, most of the time it's just a single deer. And is and it a, a net, like net siding or what, I guess, yeah. uh, paint a picture of this thing for us. Sure. Um, yeah. So what is it? It's about, oh, two and a half feet wide. Oh, about four feet high, about six feet long. Um, it's 
covered in netting and uh, it's just staked down to the ground. Uh, you put corn in the back and there's a there's a door. It's just uh, heavy. It's got a heavy weight at the bottom and the door is just more netting. So you just lift that heavy bar and and uh, f- like for- fold up the netting like an accordion. And there's a wire that goes around to a trigger mechanism. So when the deer walks in there and trips that uh, wire, uh, it releases the door and the door just drops behind them. And then, you know, our crews, when they check the traps every morning, um, you know, someone someone's wearing a hockey helmet and goes into the trap and basically tackles tackles the deer and subdues it. And then we can put a collar on it. The crews, you know, once they they get skilled at it, they can go in, capture a collar, um, um, collar it in probably five minutes. If all they're doing is ear tagging, because we only collar adult deer, if they catch a, a juvenile and just ear tag it, I mean, they'll be done in under three minutes. Okay. That's interesting. So basically just... Uh... Like like an oversized have a heart type trap for yep, for deer. Exactly. Um, do, do you see? Do you get much um, mortality from from this from the trapping and handling part of it? No, we've we've been actually pretty lucky. Um, it's probably um, it's under four percent, and there's just some. Usually, it's uh, yeah, it's just a, a self inflicted injury that happens if a deer uh you know get scared when the door closes or something um yeah it, it's pretty rare we're pretty pleased and if you look in the literature some people have cited up to 20 percent mortality but um we've seemed to have worked out a system that uh, works pretty well for us so how many how many deer are you typically collaring on an, an annual basis yeah, so we like to keep we have we like to have ten deer on each study area. Um, so you know that's our objective. We're trapping January through March, maybe into early April, and by the, by April we hope that we've got about forty deer on air. And then you know through the year, most you know most mortality on white-tailed deer is. Um, is hunting related so we're able to um uh you know able to uh track most of the deer throughout the year um what because we're following adult deer there's very little um you know there's a few deer that might die from disease a few from predation um but most of it's hunting okay so so you're adding about 10 10 new deer a year and then i guess you you know you're having somewhere in that ballpark fall off either through mortality or. Yeah. You can only catch deer January through March. Well, I mean, you could catch them in other times of the year, but you'd spend hours and hours per deer. Um, and you certainly couldn't use bait. You'd have to use dart guns or something. And it just, it wouldn't be worth it. So yeah, with, by the time, you know, we start with 40 in April and by the time the next trapping season comes around, we usually need to, you know, get about 20 deer or so collared. Okay. Gotcha. And I guess, are, are y'all monitoring these deer year round or is it just something seasonal or? 
Yeah. So you have to, like I said, the battery life is the key to how long you can monitor a deer. Uh, so, you know, outside the hunting season, well, we've had different studies over the course that have changed. Um, but for the most part, from from let's say January through September, we're getting a location every seven hours. So three or four locations a day. Um, and then in September, October, we'll start getting a location um, every hour um, all the way through the rifle hunting season that takes us into mid-December. And then we'll switch back to that seven hour. But we've had other research objectives. and. You know, we've had when we were studying fawn survival, um, uh, we would have adult does that had uh, transmitters um, that we could detect when the fawn was born. So we had adult does collared and we were getting locations on them every hour. And we had some fawn collars that would get a location on the fawn every hour. Um, Other times we've had, you know, we can remotely send commands to these callers so we can tell it okay the rifle season is starting up so let's get a location every 20 minutes and we've done that for a number of years so in pennsylvania the uh the let's see right before thanksgiving bear season uh opens up the saturday before thanksgiving in november and then after thanksgiving is when the deer season the rifle deer season opens up where you know, we have the largest number of hunters and the greatest number of deer harvested during that time. And so during that time period, we would get locations every 20 minutes. Um, And, you know, with by doing seven hours most of the year and then more intensive the other year, we can get those collars to last, you know, up to three years. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, it sounds like obviously this, these, the study areas are, are open to, to public hunting. Um, do, are you asking hunters not to shoot these collared deer or to just treat them like any other deer? No, what we tell people is um, if the deer is legal to harvest and it's a deer that you want to harvest, go ahead and harvest it. Um, it's important for our study to understand harvest rates. That's part of it. Um, harvest rates and population size. So. Um, uh, passing up a deer just because it's collared and you think you're helping out our study actually is not helping out our study. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm curious. Have, have you ever had to go, uh, knock on a door and ask for your collar back <laughs> from one that's been shot? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Usually people call us right away. Um, and you know, and we can see, Oh, that deer's at a camp. Right. So it's probably not alive. It's um, or we can we've seen, you know, seen deer travel back down to where the hunter lives. And um, but uh, generally people are very cooperative and uh, we get our callers back. Well, now that we've we've kind of, you know, touched on the 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 setup of the research, um, I'd like to get into really some of, of what you've learned over the years from from all this research and data. Uh, let's start out, I guess, with just talking maybe home range. Um, what, what have you discovered as far as home ranges and and maybe core areas for these deer, um, over over the course of the years? Yeah. 
Sure. Well, you know, I've done research more than just this study. Um, I've done research um, all over the state in different management units. Um, and so we've gotten home range data from animals in a wide variety of different habitats. And so I guess what a couple of things, the rule of thumb is that a buck's home range is one square mile is probably a pretty good rule of thumb. Um, but, uh, you know, like any rule of thumb, there's lots of things that influence that home range size. So if you look in, uh, in, uh, high quality habitat. So for example, I was doing research down in, uh, down near Gettysburg on the national military park. And of course they have good limestone soils, um, really broken up habit farmland and small woodlots. Uh, you might, you find very small home ranges. So a male home range might be under a square mile and a female home range could be as small as a quarter square mile. Um, of course, you know, in, in the rut that changes a lot. Um, so, you know, if a buck has a square mile home range during the, the most of the year during the rut. I guarantee you that's going to be two, three, and four square miles. On average, it doubles, you know, but some bucks home ranges get huge. Um, so, so, but back to this sort of patterns and that you see in, in home range size. So the smallest home ranges are in high quality habitats with good soils and a variety of forest and farmland or open type of habitats. When you get into the big woods, like our current deer forest study, home ranges of males and females are at least, most of them are at least a square mile in size. And, um, and, and you can, everything in between that. And of course, in our current study areas, the soils are not very good at all. Um, rocky, um, low pH, not a lot of, um, you know, calcium and magnesium and things like that. So. Uh, so they need larger home ranges in order to get the, the nutrition that they need to survive and reproduce. Uh, so, so in our current study, you know, where we're talking in this, in what they call the big woods, um, males and females generally have one square mile home range. And then during the rut, those male home ranges increase to two, three, four square miles. Now, uh, aside from habitat, does anything else, does uh, the age of the deer seem to have any influence at all on, on those home range sizes? No, um, not that I've seen. Um, you know, we've followed some of these males. So when we catch a male, he's an adult. So that means um, we catch him in, let's say, January through March. So he's over a year and a half old. So he's going to be two years old that June. And so for the first fall rut that we're monitoring this buck, he's two and a half years old. And some of these bucks we've followed for three years or the collars died and we had a couple of them we happened to recapture a year or two later. So, you know, we have a fair number of, of bucks that are four five, six years old. Um, and those bucks, I've not seen any evidence that they're home range changes over time. Once they, once they establish a mature home range, um, it rarely, 
rarely moves. Okay. Did, have, did y'all look at all at like core areas or where, where they spend, you know, at least 50% of their time, um, you know, as far as the sizes and stuff on those, or you just mainly just home range? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, people, you, you, the, the, uh, back up here a little second. Yeah, so you can estimate what you call core home range, but keep in mind that that's a pretty abstract, um, uh, what should I say? It's, it's just a, a decision that someone who's analyzing the data is saying that, okay, the 50% of the locations is typically what we say is that is the core area. So you're going to find that animal in this area 50% of the time. Um, that's a pretty arbitrary choice. I mean, it, I guess it makes sense, but biologic, it's not rooted in any, some biology. Um, the animal has a home range. And you can have people call these core home ranges where you find the deer most of the time. Um, and I haven't, speci- I can't give you some exact numbers for our deer because I, you know, I haven't bothered to do that. I've just been looking at home ranges. Um, but if a home range is a square mile, you know, the core home range is going to be on the order of uh, half a square mile or a little bit less. Okay. Gotcha. Now, I'm curious because last week I, I actually recorded an interview with uh, Luke Reese from Mississippi State, and, mm-hmm. and he's doing some, uh, I guess, some similar research and and that he's looking at uh, home ranges of deer in in an area there in Mississippi, and uh, he he kind of found the deer he was looking at he he could put in into two categories. And he's calling, you know, one of them sedentary deer uh, where they basically just had a single home range or just a normal home range and, and seemed to stay there for the most part, other than, you know, maybe a, a short excursion or during the rut. But and, and then he had deer that he called mobile bucks where they actually had dual seasonal home ranges. So they might, you know, stay in, in one area for most of the year and then you know, travel several miles and, and spend, you know, a couple months in, in a, another area, have a, a second home range, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen anything like that uh, where you're at there in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I think so. Um, so we observe in both males and females that some have, I guess, what I would call like a bimodal home range um, that uh, they are spend their time in one part of the forest in um most of the year and then for for males and then during the rut they actually may shift their home range to a different location and we've had several bucks we've observed do that um you know most of the bucks they just you know if you put a dot in the middle of of their home range um you know in the middle of the summer the rut home range is the same thing, except if the dot doesn't move, the center of the home range doesn't move. It's just the home range just gets, you know, two, three, four times bigger. But we've had a few bucks that actually shift their home range center um, during the rut. And, and they've done it repeatedly. Like this is where they live in winter, spring, summer. And then in fall, they'll move three miles away. And during the rut, they will spend their time there 
And then uh, usually, you know, our rut is pretty much over by time rifle season hits. And usually that pressure from the rifle season, they go back to their, the other home range that where they were in the summer. Um, so, so we do see that with our bucks and a few, but most of them don't do that. Females will shift their home ranges too. And I think that's related more to, um, rearing of young. So we've had a, in our Northern study area, again, it's contiguous forest, but it's in a landscape of contiguous forest. So, you know, we have state forest lands of hundreds of thousands of square miles in North central PA. And so our study areas are just one little part. Whereas in central PA and the Ridge and Valley region, we still have large chunks of forest, but some of, some of our study areas abut some farmland areas and, and open type of habitat. And so in our southern study areas, we'll see females that will leave the forest and head out during the fawning season to the farmland and spend the whole summer in the farmland and then head back in the fall or, um, yeah, in the fall, head back into the forest. And I think that's related to the fact that um, giving birth in farmland habitat probably has fewer predators. Um, they're harder to find. Uh, so we've had a number of females do that. It's amazing. I mean, they go, oh, one of them I think is like almost like 10 miles up and over a ridge. Um, and, and she actually went right up outside state college where Penn state is located. And that's where she, that's where we found her and her fawn and, uh, spend all summer there. And then in the fall, um, head back down into the forest. <laughs> yeah. That, that's amazing. Yeah. W- w- one of, one of the deer that, uh, he's actually watching, uh, for the last two years, actually, I think this time of year or in the spring, has actually uh, traveled several miles and swam the Mississippi River and spends like summer in Louisiana and then comes back later uh, across the Mississippi and back into into Mississippi. So huh. uh, just uh, amazing animals. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that I've observed that um, I can't explain why they do that. Um, you know, two different females um, have just these core home ranges. And then they'll make multiple treks throughout the year, the exact same route up to this location. And there are two separate deer that go to the same location. And we know from genetics that they're not even related. So, uh, you know, I can't explain it, but here we have two deer that probably live three, four miles apart and they both travel to the same spot um, and then go back to their home range you know, two or three times a year. Hmm. I, I guess that that's the kind of stuff that, that keeps us coming back and, and wanting to research these animals more and more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just fascinating stuff. I, I guess, you know, what I didn't ask as far as on the home ranges and, and what me and Luke talked about a good bit was just, I mean, do you see, you know, you say a, a square mile is, is the average, but I'm, I'm guessing you see a, a pretty good variability on that. Would you just attribute that to, you know, the individuality of these bucks, you know, just their own, I guess, preference? So the variability in home range, there's a lot more variability if you go from 
like I was explaining from a high quality, you know, fragmented forest farmland habitat. And then, um, and, and as you get more and more forest and lower quality habitat, you get larger home range sizes. And I would say there's more variability on that, you know, axis, you know, from high quality to low quality habitat than the variability within, let's say, our deer forest study, which has all forest relatively low quality. And to be honest with you, I can't really explain why one deer might have a larger home range than another and why some deer you know, during the rut, their home ranges expand three, four times where others might just double in size. Um, I just don't, you know, have enough information to really, uh, you know, hypothesize or the data to even test them. You know, I don't even know to what, what might influence that, those into that individual variation. Right. Yeah. There's just so, so many so many variables there that it'd be hard to. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it could be habitat. It could be, you know, the, the number of females that are available. If there's lower density of females, maybe they have larger home ranges during the rut. Of course, you know, I have an idea of how many deer we have, but I don't know exactly, you know, for that individual deer, you know, how many females are, are in the area. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that, uh, we might be able to explain if we had the data, but we're still, our technology is behind our questions. Let's, let's shift gears here a little bit and, and talk about bedding. And I know from, from our conversation before we start recording, I know this isn't something that you necessarily looked at specifically, but uh, it's always a, a hot topic among deer hunters, you know, deer want to, or deer hunters want to, you know, pinpoint those, those quote bedding areas and, and hunt, you know, bedding areas or hunt between bedding areas and food. Um, so have you, I guess from, from all this data you've looked at, have you, can you pinpoint any certain habitat or terrain features or anything that is consistent among where these deer uh, appear to bed? Well, yes and no. <laughs> uh, so I guess it depends, you know, what time of year you're talking about. Um, and it also depends on on the data that we're collecting. So, you know, during the rut, or, or yeah, during the rut fall, you know, that's archery season. Our archery season in in Pennsylvania opens around October one, um, goes through for six seven weeks into middle uh, middle of November, and then our rifle season is after Thanksgiving. Um, and so we've we've gotten locations maybe every hour or every three hours during that archery season, and I really, you know, I've not been. I've looked at a lot of movies and and I've posted some on our blog um, of deer movements, and I have not been able to uh, find um, any consistent pattern in where deer might bed down. Um, and again, you have to keep in mind, I'm in a contiguous forest. If I was in a different landscape, you know, let's say farmland with small woodlots, it might be very different. It might, I might be able to say, yeah, this is the kind of spot that deer are going to bed in. But in the contiguous forest, um, during that October season, I, I can't see a pattern. 
Um, now during the rifle season, you know, we've, we've got really intensive location, like I said, every 20 minutes and there, um, deer are responding to hunting pressure and you do see some consistent patterns, uh, come up, but, um, yeah, that's, you know, that's, uh, so for the most part, this idea that, oh, you know, find where they bed and, you know, set up and all that. If you're in archery, I, I don't have any data to help you there. Um, and then in the, the rifle season, it's not so much bedding as, as deer responding to this intensive hunting pressure and just finding areas to hide and they don't move. So I guess you want me to go into some detail of, of that. Do you want to, yeah. Uh, what, rabbit, what rabbit hole do we want to go down? <laughs> well, let, let's talk about that. I guess as far as, as movement, um, we don't, we're not necessarily, you know, concerned, I guess at this point about where they're bedding, but let's look at movement from those bedding areas and, and how far, you know, they might move away from those or, or around those during daylight hours, um, maybe pre-rut or that arch- archery season versus, you know, once the, the rifle season's on. Yeah. I, so in, in the archery season, I, I, I can't say that there's any response to hunting and, um, that I can detect, but in the rifle season, there is clear patterns that go on. And we've posted a bunch of different movies on our blog that show deer movements. And, um, both males and females, and this is what typically happens. Um, the deer that survive the hunting season, they have some go-to place that they've learned. Um, I'm sure just by luck that they're, they're unlikely to be disturbed. And so by usually by five in the morning, they're in that, what I call hiding spot and they'll sit there from five to maybe 10 a.m. You, and certainly by noon, um, then, then they start moving again. And by three and four o'clock in the afternoon, they've all left that hiding spot. And then they're traveling around um, all night long. And then they do it all over again. By five o'clock in the morning, they're back in their hiding spot. And those hiding spots um, are usually... Um, like I said, spots where they're not going to get disturbed. I've seen some where they're probably 50 yards off the state forest road. Um, I've seen some of them that are, um, you know, 500 feet on this, sitting at the top of this talus slope that, uh, you know, I've actually checked them out. My wife and I took the dogs in the, in the spring and hiked up to this spot. And I can tell you that there's no way you could sneak up on that deer because you had to climb up, you know, a 45 degree slope almost of just rock boulders. And if you came off the top, you know, so they're going to hear you or see you coming. There's no way you'd ever sneak up on them. Um, so yeah. So the, and and the other pattern is those spots are usually um in the uh up in the plateau region 
they're usually or and in the ridge and valley they're on a south or southeast facing slope so you know the wind wind is generally coming from the west so they can smell anything that comes from the west and um and if you come up from below them they're going to hear you and if you you know and they can just jump off that top and in 15 seconds they'll be you know 500 feet in elevation below you and you probably never even heard them get up and leave anyway um so it's it's pretty interesting to see how these creatures have adapted and um you know it's in in pennsylvania our season used to start on a monday um so you can imagine what happens on saturday sunday as everyone goes to camp and they're putting up their tree stand and just that activity alone triggers them and they're already in their hiding mode by the time the season opens on monday morning yeah we 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 clue them in and then and then we wonder you know how did they know <laughs> yeah exactly but, but j- just to clarify, now are these individual bucks? They're returning to typically to the same, the same hiding spot day after day, or do they have multiple spots like this that they're moving around to. It depends. Some of them, you know, I think it depends on the configuration of roads and topography. Some of them have the same spot that they go to. Um, others. Um, you know, like that one I said that, you know, would bed down, you know, 50 yards from a road. Um, he's on the, he's the one I'm thinking of was in the Ridge and Valley region. And um, he would just, you know, he might be on either side of the ridge, but he would just sit um, multiple spots um, where he would just sit during the day and and not move. And it was a really steep slope. I mean, you would not want to walk this it would not be easy to walk um you certainly could not walk quietly um so if you did you know try and go in there he's gonna hear you way before you have any idea that he's even there yeah so it's probably less about habitat and terrain and more just about lack of disturbance i mean we're you know somewhere where they can get that people aren't going to be yeah, I had a grad student who did an interesting project, um, and this was in a different part of the state, but it was still that um, big woods, Allegheny Plateau. So um, if you can imagine, it's like a, the plateau is flat on top, and then you've got all these drainages. Well, the roads are all, of course, on the flat areas up on top, and there's like one main paved road, and off that are spurs of just gravel roads. And then, uh, so what he did was we looked, we actually looked at the distribution of hunters um, and we've gotten an airplane and we could fly overhead and we could map out where we found hunters and, um, and looked at the distribution of hunters. And as you can imagine, um, the further you get from a road and the steeper the slope, the less likely you were to find a hunter. And then one of the things he did was looked at the home ranges of these deer and, you know, was how far was the center of the home range from a road and how steep was the area in which it lived. And he could actually show that um, uh, 
that the harvest rate on deer um, was actually higher. Um, it, it was like a, a curve, which I wish I could draw a picture for your readers, but in your mind, if you can imagine, the probability of harvesting a deer was really low next to the road. And then as you get further away from the road, the probability of harvesting deer increases. And then when you get too far away from the road, it actually starts declining again. So there's kind of this sweet spot. And what he found is that if you hunted 500 to 1,000 yards from a road on slopes that were um, less than, let's say, 20 to 30 degrees, you had your highest probability of harvesting a deer. Um, I'm not sure if that helps hunters, you know, because you could have a 500 yards from a road and be at the right slope and it could be the thickest mountain laurel you could ever imagine. So you're not going to hunt it. But as a rule of thumb, um, you need to get uh, about a quarter mile off the road, quarter to a half mile off the road. And I think what's going on there is that you have a fair number of hunters, but you don't have too many hunters. The number of hunters is just right to move deer around, but not such a high density that they're just going to flee and like, you know, go to their steepest spots and that sort of thing. And then when you get further from the road, it, it, odds are it's steep anyway, and you're just not going to be able to hunt that. So that was that was kind of interesting. I'm not sure how much that helps the individual hunter, um, but it, it's a pattern that we saw that, you know, clearly there's dynamic going on between hunters and deer and and topography and how all of that influences, you know, hunter success rates and um, and deer harvest rates. Now. Do you, do you happen to remember? I'm curious what uh, what was the average distance that the, that these hunters were found from a from a road? Oh, geez, I think it was something like eighty percent of the hunters were within a third of a mile of the road. Okay, that that I don't guess that really surprises me. <laughs> Being I hunt a lot of public land myself, and yeah, it's uh, yeah. They, we so you know to kind of back up. Many years ago, I was looking at Game Commission harvest data, and um, you used to, when you harvested deer, you used to check off, were you hunting on public or private land? And, uh, you know, there's some issues about that, like what is what exactly is public and what exactly is private land? So the Game Commission stopped collecting those data. But you could see, if you looked at the age structure of deer, that were harvested on public land, especially in North central Pennsylvania, it was actually older than the deer that were being harvested on private land. And, and it was just, you know, that, that goes against conventional wisdom because the conventional wisdom is it's public land, unlimited access to anybody who wants to hunt there and that the deer are over harvested. Yet here, the data were clearly showing that you were more likely to find an older deer on some of these public lands in, in North central PA. And, and I always thought about like that. I mean, why is that? And, and I would say my research that I've done, you know, over the past 20 years is like what I just described is that our public lands are places where, um, 
where you can you can get a mile from a road. There aren't very many places like that, but you can you can get a mile from a road or um or it's going to be very steep and very difficult to hunt. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, what I call just refugia on pub on some of our public lands that deer can avoid hunters and um and not get harvested. And so you know, and we're seeing it with the current deer forest study that, um, like I said, a five and six year old buck on our study areas is not unusual. Um, for sure. It's not unusual to find a five or six year old buck. Yeah. Now, once, once this hunting pressure subsides after the, after the rifle season, um, do these deer return back to their previous patterns pretty quickly or do they kind of stay, keep using those those hiding spots for a while afterwards what what did you see as far as that yeah so well to be honest you know we're trying to save battery life so we kind of switch back to you know seven hours a day so but from what i've seen um would suggest that they they know when the pressures disappeared and they're pretty much back to their normal patterns although you know you're getting into winter so we do see a little bit differences in that, um, depending on snow, um, that, you know, they may, they may, uh, seek out, you know, South facing slopes and that sort of thing, uh, that time of year more so than, um, than other, you know, North, they might avoid North facing slopes. They like early successional habitats, you know, recent clear cuts and such. I think they just get more sun and there's less snow. Okay. Now, going back to the the pre-rifle season, the archery season there, um, how much movement, daily movement are you seeing there? I mean, obviously it's going to be less than, than the, the rut, but I mean, are they still moving a fair amount during daylight hours? Yeah, I, I don't, um, like I said, I, I can't see any pattern that would suggest that they're responding to hunter pressure. Um, but there's only a few weeks of that. I mean, by, by the third week in October, probably 15 to 20% of our females are, have been, uh, bred. So, so it's all confounded with the rut. Um, so it's really, you know, I, I can't tease apart, you know, are these movements due to breeding behavior or are they due to hunting? Um, yeah, I can't tease that apart. So I really don't have a lot of insights. Um, but there, I, all I can say is I have no evidence to suggest that deer movements are influenced by uh, hunting during the archery season. What about does terrain have, seem to have any influence on their how they're, I guess, moving about their their home range as as far as you know, do you see any consistencies where, you know, these, these deer like travel in the ridge tops versus, you know, running the bottoms or, yeah. or, or is it just all over the place? It's, I, I was, I've been amazed at looking at some of these deer. Um, I, I can think of one buck. He has a relatively small home range smack dab on top of the, um, on top of the ridge. You know, and, and our ridges and the ridge and valley region can be pretty dry. So I don't even know where he's getting his water. 
Um, you know, you'd think they might be traveling further down slope to get, you know, access to water or something, but nope. All summer long, he sits up on top of that ridge. So somehow he's getting sufficient water. Um, and, and then I've seen other females that all week long, every day, up and over the ridge, back over the ridge. I mean, basically, this deer is going up in elevation, you know, up 500 feet, down 500 feet the other side, then works her way back up over the top. Um, just uh, so, you know, basically, it's like, no, no, I have no pattern <laughs> to, to tell you. They're just, they have a home range and that's where it is. And for some reason, that's where they picked it to be. Yeah. Now, this may not be something you've looked at as well, but kind of going along that same lines as far as terrain, you know, y'all, you often hear um, outdoor riders and, and communicators talk about these saddles, you know, terrain saddles, the low spots on these ridges uh, from your deer movement, what you've tracked. Do you, have you seen any? Any evidence that that they like to use those those saddles versus going over you know the higher points of the ridge or or is that something um, you've paid attention to at all? Yeah, um, I think there's something to be said for that. You know, unfortunately, I don't think I have the data. You know, I need data like every half hour or fifteen minutes. You know, because you think about it, you know, if you think about, oh, a location every hour, you must really know what that deer is doing. But but you don't because you think about how much ground, um, you know, at two miles an hour in one hour, you can cover two miles Um, and deer don't usually walk that fast. But um, but so I don't think I can really tease apart from the data that we've collected, you know, just how much does, you know, topography like little um you know cuts or gaps in the ridge how that might influence their movements um so unfortunately i I don't think i have a lot of insights on that but you know to some extent from what i've looked at you know certainly there are places where a deer tends to travel but even then you know i thought about could i use does this information give me any insight on where I should set up my tree stand and archery. And, and it's basically like, nope, I have not figured it out. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, I guess, if you know, if you get one point, the deer is on one side of the ridge. And then an hour later, when you get your next GPS point, he's on the other. You have no way of knowing, you know, if he crossed in a saddle or over the peak or, or how he got there. So yeah, I hadn't hadn't thought about that. I mean, the 20 minute stuff that we did during the rifle season, we can see, but, you know, in Pennsylvania with the density of hunters, um, there's just nothing natural about their movement. They are responding to hunter, um, activity and, and that pretty much drives everything. Okay. What, uh, what about the, uh, the dreaded October lull or, (laughs) or the, uh, the the lockdown phase, quote unquote, that people talk about, you know, during the rut, uh, has any of your your data, I guess, shown either one of those to to actually occur? Um, yeah. So I'm I'm a skeptic. I'll, <laughs> I'll just be upfront right now. I'm a skeptic. Um, I do think there could be some things. So th- I think there's multiple things going on that could potentially explain 
an October lull or an observation of an October lull. And, um, and, and so here's, here's one. One is some people have pointed to the harvest data to say, look, the season opens in early October, they kill lots of deer, and then there isn't any harvest until November. Well, you also have to look at hunter effort. And we know that hunter effort changes. So everyone's amped up to go out in early October. And so you have a peak in the harvest in early October. And then there isn't much activity. And then when the rut kicks in by the end of October, um, the first two weeks of November, in Pennsylvania, on average, the peak of the rut, half our females are bred by November 13th. So from the end of October to the middle of November, the woods are pretty crazy with bucks. And it's a lot of fun looking at pictures on the game cameras. Um, and so I think part of the, some, some people have explained the October lull and po pointed to harvest data. And, and I'd say that's, that's not valid because sure the harvest shows a lull, but un, until you look at hunter effort, um, I think you would see that hunter effort drops off and has the same pattern as the harvest. The other, the other thing would be, um, you know, I think locally it could have some effects in some years. So for example, if you had a really good mast year with lots of acorns, deer don't have to move and they might get up and feed for a little bit and it's not going to take them long to get full. And then they can just lay down and chew their cud. So you might see, um, you know, in that early October, middle of October, less activity. Um, but then, then that all has to go out the window by the third week in October, because that's when the rut starts and it just gets crazier and crazier from that point on. So, um, so I have a, a good friend who's a hunter and he's always, we're always giving each other crap about the October lull. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I don't believe in it. Um, but I think there are some things that could explain why, you know, people don't see as much activity. And then when you compare it to what happens during the rut, yeah, sure. When you look at the last week of October or the first week in November and compare that to two weeks earlier, I guarantee you that two weeks earlier was a lull compared to that time. Right. So anyway, right. that's all I have to say about the October lull. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah. I, I'm not doubting people don't see a lull in deer activity, but it's, I think, like you said, it, it's more about where they are and not that the deer just aren't moving. <laughs> just, just being, being in the right place. Yeah. I mean, we've tried to, or we have looked at it quantitatively and looking at deer movements. And um, the bottom line is that the bucks, they just move. When you start from October one through the end of October, it just, their movements just increase, increase, increase because, you know, there's more females, more and more females that are, you know, in estrus and you get more activity and more traveling by bucks. So, um, yeah, I, I really can't say there's a lull, but I certainly can agree that there's an increase in activity by the end of October. Right. Now, I, I believe I've seen you guys post some stuff previously about uh, weather factors, maybe that, that in, might influence or weather factors that don't influence deer movement. Uh, can, can you speak on that? Are there, are there some weather factors that cause deer to move more or less? 
Yeah, the the short answer is not really. Um, but so we had uh, had a couple of students look at data. Most of it's been for females because when we were doing that fawn survival stuff, um, we had locations every hour. And um, so it was a lot easier to tie their movements to, um, you know, different factors, whether it's moon phase or wind or rain. Um, and we found some subtle patterns. Um, we haven't found any relationship to the moon at all. Uh, it seems like uh, rain affects females less than males. I guess they they just are fair weather friends, I guess. Um, you know, um, yeah, so there are some indications of movements, but again, you know, what I'm measuring is like distance moved per hour. Um, and, and there's lots of ways that deer could respond other than just in, you know, how much they travel. So, uh, but by using, but, but looking at that metric, no, I, I, I could say, yeah, wind and if it's really windy, it has some influence, but, um, and if there's some rain, it might influence it. It tends to influence bucks. Um, bucks tend to move less when it's raining than females, but not as much. It doesn't, let's put it this way. The weather does not affect deer as much as it affects me. <laughs> um, uh, we had one miserable opening day. It was rainy and 35 degrees and, after about two hours, I was like soaked and I'm like, nope, see you later. I'm back in the, back in the house. And, um, you know, we looked at deer movements and that didn't look any different than the day before. Yeah. But my, my movements were different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mine usually are too. Uh, I can be a, a fair weather hunter at times myself. But as we, I guess, as we kind of wrap things up here, um, from all the deer, deer research you've been involved with, uh, I guess what are some of the the key takeaways for our listeners who are, who are deer hunters to help them, you know, improve their odds of of success in the field? Now, I know you already said you don't have all the answers yourself because, uh, you know, it, it hadn't helped you figure them out exactly. But any any key takeaways, I guess, that, that might help them be more successful? Yeah. So I wrote a blog post about this. I, I, I maybe I can send it to you later. Um, where I, we had this one buck that he would run up to the top of this ridge and that spot was the furthest you could get from any road. And, um, and this is another time that my wife and I took the dogs and trudged up to this spot to see what it was like. And, uh, and so if you were going to hunt this deer, this is what I would do. First of all, you'd have to get up um it's pretty darn steep so you could get up there you know before dawn and start heading up but you're not going to get up there until light and i think what you'd have to do is make a hike in uh you know ahead of the season and maybe set up a tree stand or something but but you're going to have to hike in it's going to take you hour hour and a half to get to the top of that ridge and if you could sit on that ridge all day long, you might catch them probably, probably um, midday or, you know, around three o'clock. But I can tell you at three o'clock, 
you're going to have to start walking back down because there's no way you're walking out of there in the dark. And, um, and so that would be my strategy is if you were really looking for an older buck and one that had figured out how to avoid hunters is, you know, look at a map, find some sort of ridge, um, that's, you know, a decent, decent distance from the road. Um, and you're just going to have to acknowledge that, you know, that morning and evening hunt just isn't going to happen. Um, but, and I wrote that blog post and, and other hunters commented and some of them said, I'm too old to do it now, but that's what I used to do. And, and I was pretty successful with it. So that's the, that's the only strategy I can think of because there's no way that you could ever, um, sneak up on them. Uh, I mean, I guess you could put a drive on, but man, I mean, some of our hillsides are really steep and, um, you know, I, I'd be worried I'd end up smashing my scope or something slipping down the hillside. Um, it's just, you know, you'd need a whole pile of guys and then the odds are the deer would just run off anyway. Um, but that, that is really my, my only suggestion. Um, it's, they've got, I, I think these bucks are, uh, have, are holding all the cards. Um, they can smell better than us. They can hear better than us and they can run faster than us. So, um, your only chance is to, you know, waylay them in the middle of the day. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they don't get to be mature bucks by making a lot of mistakes. So <laughs> you just got to happen yeah. to be there when they, when they finally make one. Yeah. And again, my advice is, you know, it's only relevant to, you know, to central Pennsylvania in the, you know, kind of landscape that we have in both, both the Ridge and Valley and the, um, and the Allegheny Plateau, you know, have, we have large tracts of land, um, you know, it might be a half mile or so from, you know, from one road to the other, and it could be really steep in between. And in those situations, I think that might be your your best chance what i just described yeah has has there been anything i guess along the way uh during your research that that's just surprised you something you know some behavior you you didn't expect or or something maybe that you were expecting to see and and didn't um well i guess you know it kind of uh i kind of for me it's kind of interesting you know i told the story about how you know, geez, it's been almost 30 years now that I saw that there were older deer on public lands. And it's kind of interesting to me to be able to have done some research to actually have some understanding of why that might be and, and the mechanisms that cause that to happen. So it's been the GPS technology makes it really interesting to watch, you know, these deer movements and some of the crazy unexplained things that they do. Um, but also perhaps have a little more understanding about, you know, why is it that actually on some of our public lands, we end up with older deer. Um, so for, for me, that's been really kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, Dwayne, I, I'll thank you so much for taking time out to come on the show and, and talk about your deer research. Uh, it's always, I always love hearing about those kind of studies and uh, the GPS collar studies and, and just trying to, trying to, 
you know, pick some some nuggets of wisdom out of there that can apply to my to my hunting strategy. And uh, I know our listeners are always enjoy that kind of information as well. And it was good, like I said, after last week talking with uh, Luke down in Mississippi, it was good to get a, a northern perspective on things this time. So I, I enjoyed it. Oh, my pleasure. Um, you know, that's, you know, we have a blog. Um, if your listeners go to deer.psu.edu, uh, we have a blog where we try and kind of share what we learn as we go along with the, with the research project. And they can also tag along sort of, uh, vicariously live the, um, live the job of a deer trapper in the wintertime. So, um, if folks, you know, that the reason for doing that was to try and share that with people. So if, if folks are interested, I encourage them to check that out and, uh, yeah, appreciate the opportunity to share, uh, some of the things that we've learned over the past 10 or 20 years here in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, I'll include, uh, I'll include links to those, uh, the blog and everything in our show notes. Cause you guys do do a, a uh, a great job of of putting out information uh um probably you know as as well as any uh research going on in in the country you guys really really get the information out there and, and like you said let people kind of follow along with everything that's going on so i enjoy well, i enjoy getting the the email notifications when you when you post those new blog posts and we'll be sure to share that with our listeners well i have to give a shout out to my colleague Janine Flegel cuz she's she's the writer um, my wife always gives me a hard time. She says, well, I can tell you, you wrote the blog post cause there's all sorts of graphs in it. And, uh, <laughs> there you go. Janine, Janine so that is what makes it, um, makes it readable. So, um, it's been, it's been a lot of work. Uh, we've been doing it since 2014. So, uh, but we're still plugging away at it and, uh, yeah, we would love to have more readers. So. We hope people might check it out. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good thing because I, I know, and a lot of these schools seem to be getting better at it, doing better jobs at it, putting out a lot more information now. But, you know, there's just been decades and decades of, of research and until really, you know, here in the last several years, a, a lot of that information just wasn't wasn't getting out to the the general public. So, um, it, it's good to to do things like you guys are doing there where people can see what's going on. And like I said, in some cases, even, even apply that to, to how they hunt. So. Absolutely. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Dr. Dwayne Diefenbach. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the deer season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us. Uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. 
that you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.